0: What a wonderful morning it's already been as we have gotten to sing about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to turn our attentions now to Psalm 130, the psalm we just sang. And I would like to preach that psalm to you this morning. As you're turning there, if you are not familiar, my name is Will Peterson. I am officially titled the interim assistant pastor because as Mitch prayed, This church who has already loved us so well will in about a year be sending us out to Estera where we've moved here recently to plant a church. And so, I just want to thank you every chance I get for your warm embrace of us. You have been so kind and we really appreciate it. As I mentioned, I want to turn our attention to Psalm 130 this morning and I want to read it and ask that you would follow along please and then we will study it together. Psalm 130 a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to You, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let Your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If You, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with You, there is forgiveness that You may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will deliver, or he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I wonder if you've seen what, I'm not sure went viral, but I think went Christian viral. I wonder if you've seen the video a few years ago of Alistair Begg. I think it was at a Ligonier conference when he was sort of lamenting the way that he was greeted when he visited a particular church. He didn't name the church. But he was explaining that he was visiting some friends in a different state of which I will not name And he went to church that morning and he got to go. He was excited to go because he got to go and just sit there and not really do anything except what he was told to do from the front. So he was sitting there and he was listening and he was waiting and he looked up on the screen and he saw the countdown for when the service would start. And when that timer hit zero, just like clockwork, the band came on and and the music played. And then after the music played, the song leader said to the group that was gathered there today, how y'all doing this morning? How you feeling? And if you know anything about Alistair Begg, you know he's going to have a field day with that one. So he riffs on that experience and he says, how am I doing? It's half past eight. I'm barely awake. How am I doing? I'm lousy. That's how I'm doing. I just kicked the dog and I don't even have a dog. And then he continues to go on. He says, how am I doing? Don't ask me how I'm doing. Ask me what I know. Ask me what I know. Right there, I think in that uh, Begian lament, we'll call it. Right there, I think he captured something that we need to recapture. And right there, I think he captured something that the saints have captured ever since the fall. I think He captured something that is most beautifully and accurately displayed for us in the Psalms. It's not wrong for us to think about how we're feeling. If, if you took that as a sort of tirade from an angry pastor about you not supposing to feel things, that's not it. It's not that we ignore how we're feeling. The fact is, it's quite likely that some of us here to this morning are just as miserable as he was that morning. It's not wrong that we would acknowledge how we feel, but at the very same time, what the Psalms do for us is, number one, acknowledge the place of feeling, acknowledge the reality of feeling. As as sinners in a fallen world, we feel things, and it doesn't usually feel very good. Which is why you'll find as you read the psalms, that the majority of the psalms are not happy-go-lucky songs. They're not uh, you know, riding on a unicorn, eating a lollipop, sliding down a rainbow psalms. They're psalms of lament, they're psalms of cry, they're psalms of suffering. They're psalms that reach into the souls of each one of us and give us accurate biblical, from God words to be able to explain how we're feeling and how we're doing. And yet the other thing that the Psalms do for us is not not just acknowledge those feelings and then leave us there to feel them, but they also show us what it looks like to communicate truth both to ourselves and to those around us. To acknowledge the way that I'm feeling in this particular case, this psalmist is down in the pits. To acknowledge the way that I'm feeling yet yet at the very same time to acknowledge that the Lord is my hope. That I might be feeling this way, but the Lord will not leave me there forever. And so there's a grittiness to the psalms, isn't there? There's a realness to the psalms. And that's what I think that we need to see this morning. For whatever reason, as we've, I think, have succumbed to the idea, and I don't know that we've been directly taught this idea, or if it's more so just kind of been flushed out passively through our culture and into the church. I think we need the language of the Psalms to communicate to us both how to lament and how to grab hold of the Lord in that lament. It's interesting, as you follow along this psalm, he begins in the depths. He's crying out of the depths, right? You picture this this large hole in the ground that he's sunk to the bottom of, and he can't see anything. And he's crying out and he's crying out and he knows he can't get out of this hole because it's a deep hole. But he's crying out of this hole and he knows that there is someone who will hear him and that someone who will hear him is the only one he really cares to hear him. Because it's the only one who can help him with the problem that he has. You read the Psalms and you encounter the psalmist in the depths, multiple times. And there are various reasons sometimes that the, psalms, that the psalmist is in the depths. Sometimes, for instance, he's homesick. He's been taken from his land and he just wants to go home. Other times, the psalmist seems to be in a state of depression where he just can't shake that numb, cold feeling. But then there are other times, like this psalm, Where the psalmist is crying out from the depths, not because of any particular problem outside of him, but because of the problem that exists inside of him. Because of his sin. That's not to say that every problem we have, every time we feel as though we're in the depths, it is because of our own sin. But I I will say to you with utmost confidence, every time you have a problem, every time you feel that you're in the depths, it is because of sin. Sometimes it's yours. And sometimes it's the sin of others against you. And yet, sometimes it's the crummy result of a world that is inflicted with the disease of sin. So we have the psalmist crying out from the depths. And you'll notice as the psalm progresses its way through, he ends on this this note of hope, this high note where not only does he find the hope himself personally in verses 5-6, to but then from that personal place of hope, he calls the whole congregation to hope in the Lord. But I think it's interesting, as you look at this psalm, he cries out for forgiveness, or he cries out from his anguish, he acknowledges the Lord's forgiveness, but you actually don't find the offer of forgiveness given in this psalm. Now, don't kick me out yet. Follow me here, okay? I think what this psalm is doing is showing us what it looks like, number one, to cry out from the depths, and number two, to gain confidence while still in the depths. So I'm excited to preach this psalm. I think that what this psalm does for us is teach us to sing the blues. I love the blues. I'm not a musician, but I love the blues. I love the blues because when I hear the blues, I feel the blues. But I think that this psalm is not just the blues, because if you're familiar with the blues and that genre, sorry for saying blues so many times, If you're familiar with the genre of the blues, then you know that the blues just leave you there. There's no resolve in the songs, most often. Not so the God of redemption. You see, He teaches us to sing the sanctified blues. We may start out in the blues, and we may remain with a case of the blues, but we know that there's something outside of us that offers us a greater hope than anything we would ever have inside of us and anything that we could ever feel inside of us. You with me? So let's learn how to sing the sanctified blues together. I think we do best to split this psalm up. in. Uh, if you've got an ESV, then you can see the sort of the pairs verses 1 and 2 paired together, verses 3 and 4, 5 and 6, 7 and 8. I think we do best to split it up in that type of a way, though you'll see that there is a clear turning point beginning in verse 5 after the psalmist reminds himself that God forgives his sin. But first, I want us to look at verses 1 and 2 where we see the sinner's cry. We see the sinner's cry in verses 1 and 2. I've highlighted it for you already, but let's drop in again. Out of the depths, I cry to You, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let Your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. You can see clearly what the psalmist is doing. And in fact, if you pay attention, you can feel what the psalmist is doing, can't you? Whether you're here this morning and you're in the depths yourself, or you've ever been in the depths before, you know what he's experiencing. You know that feeling of despair. You know that feeling when you want to say to God, God, if you don't listen up, something bad's going to happen to me. And that type of praying might make you a little bit uncomfortable, but I want to point out to you that when the psalmist tells the Lord in verse two, 2, oh O Lord, hear my voice, that is actually an imperative command. Now the psalmist understands that he's not in a position to give God a command. He's the creature, not the Creator. But if you're familiar with the life of David, who we don't think wrote this psalm, but if you're familiar with the life of David, then you know that type, of, that type of confidence that talks to the Lord like this. And if you're in Christ, well then you know that in Christ, you have been given a confidence in order to approach the throne of grace. He's not being flippant. He's not being disrespectful. This is the cry of the godly. This is the way the godly talk to God about their sin. There's a version of Christianity that gets uh, gets, that pollutes the airwaves and uh, gets propagated today, which which tries to teach us that if you're a Christian, then that means you're a saint, and if you're a saint, then you're not a sinner anymore. But the Reformation has already taught us that you are both, as a Christian, a saint and a sinner at the very same time. And so the Apostle Paul can acknowledge his, the reality that he's in Christ. I mean, he's taught us the most about being in Christ. And he can call even the Corinthian church a group of saints, and yet at the very same time, he can lament the fact that in his own mind, he is the chief of sinners. The life of faith in God for us, the Christian life, is a life that is perplexing at times. It's a life where we are both saints and sinners, and as saints and sinners, we can have the confidence that the psalmist has to talk to God like this from the depths, to cry out to Him, and to say something to God like, Lord, bend your ear down here because I need to make sure that you hear me. Isn't that what he says in the second half of verse 2? Let your ears be attentive. Notice he says, to the voice of my pleas. His problems are so great that even his pleas have a voice. Or at least that's how he feels. What is he pleading for? He's pleading for mercy. You may have a translation that says to the voice of my my supplications. The root word is the word that's connected to mercy. And so this was the word that a servant would use to plead to a master for mercy. Would make a request to appeal to the mercy of the master. And it's interesting here that all throughout this psalm, you may have noticed in your Bibles, the word Lord appears eight different times. Now, you'll know the indicator of, uh, of the Hebrew words here, if, you, if this has been explained to you before, by noticing that the first appearance of the Lord in the end of verse 1 is capital L, big capital L, and then capital O-R-D. And then the next appearance of the Lord in verse 2 is capital L, lowercase O-R-D. The first one refers to the covenant name of God, God's name Himself, Yahweh. And the next one refers to God as the all-powerful One, Adonai. And so it's fitting then that He would refer to His Master, Adonai Yahweh, His Master, and He would appeal to Him for His mercy. He knows that the only one He can go to is His Master. The only one who will help Him is the Lord who sits sovereignly over everything that He's created. And so that's where He goes. And you can hear how desperate he is. He's crying. He wants the Lord to hear. He wants the Lord's ears to be attentive to him. He is in, as he says, the depths. It reminds me of another man who was in the depths. You remember the story of the prophet Jonah? The prophet who got the call of God to go and to preach repentance to Nineveh and who, of course, in humble submission, did it right away. Oh wait, did I read that wrong? No, he blew it, right? Just like, just like we do so often. He, he said, essentially, I hate the Ninevites. They're a bunch of terrorists. I would never want you to save them, God. I'm going the opposite direction. And so he got on a boat and he set sail. And he went into the bottom of the boat and he fell asleep. And this storm... uh, Actually, the text says that God threw a windstorm on the sea. Which is such an amazing picture of the power of the Sovereign Lord, isn't it? He throws a windstorm on the sea... And it is this massive storm, and the crew is freaking out. They wake him up. They wonder, why in the world is he sleeping? And then they cast lots to try to figure out. They roll dice to try to figure out whose fault it is. And of course, the lot lands on Jonah. And finally, Jonah fesses up and says, it's me, I'm running from Yahweh my God. And Jonah's solution to the problem is not to repent of his running, His solution to the problem is to tell the crew, throw me in the sea, and all your problems will be solved. But the the pagans are more noble than the prophet, and they say, no, we're not going to do that. And so they continue to try to fight until they finally realize, okay, the only way we're going to make it out of here is if we throw the prophet overboard. And so they do. They throw him overboard, and the Lord sends a great fish to swallow him up to be his Really smelly submarine. And finally, at the bottom of the sea, inside of the belly of a great fish, Jonah repents. He says this in Jonah chapter 2, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, or the grave, I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought my life from the pit, O Yahweh, my Adonai. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It took Jonah not just a great windstorm. Not just the threat of drowning. He, He actually welcomed drowning. He would rather die than obey God at that moment. The prophet and so God said, all right, well, if, if that's not enough to get through to you, then I'll sink you to the bottom of the ocean, and I'll send a fish to swallow you up, and you'll be so close to death that you'll feel as though the bars of death are closing around you, and there's no way for you to get out except to cry out to me. If that's what it takes, God says, then that's what I'll do to you. Why? Because God loved Jonah. friend." I don't know what what situation you came here this morning in today. I don't know how you're feeling. I I don't know where you are with the Lord. But you do and He does. What I do want you to know is that the Lord loves you too much to let you have a life of rebellion and sin. And if he has to, he will do whatever it takes to wake you up to get your attention. But I want you to know, and I want you to listen to me. I want you to know that there is no place where the ear of God cannot hear you. Jonah is encased in the stomach of a fish. Inside of the sea. And he cries out to the Lord and he can say then salvation belongs to the Lord. I want to speak to you. If you're you're walking in a pattern of sin that you feel frustrated with, but you're just not sure how you can get out of, cry to the Lord, my friend. Cry to Him. You're not sure how you can get out of it because you can't get yourself out of it. But He can. I want to speak to you, Christian. Even if you are in the Lord and you know the Lord, and yet there's, there's that sin that you can't seem to get rid of, you won't seem to let go of, cry to the Lord. His is the only hand who can reach down into the depths of that pit and pull you out of it. So when you feel that you're in the depths, Who do you cry to? I want you to know that just as we have already sang, the Lord Jesus waits with open ears to hear your cry. He will come running to you faster than you can imagine. And He will save you. So we see the sinner's cry. And then in verses 3 and 4, we see the sinner's confidence. The sinner's confidence... He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. He's still speaking to the Lord, and he does what is in Hebrew called a merism. It's a mirror image. He, he talks about the Lord's marking of iniquities, and he asks the question, if you, O Lord, should mark or keep a record of iniquities or sins, then who could stand before you? But then he, he meets that question with the character of God as his answer. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. It's an interesting question, isn't it? If the Lord should mark iniquities, who could stand? He's not saying the Lord does not mark iniquities. The Lord marks iniquities, my friends. But the Lord forgives iniquities. And the the list of iniquities, the list of sins that you bring to the Lord Jesus Christ is never more than what He can forgive, nor is it more than what He is willing to forgive. He stands ready and eager to wipe that list clean. But it's a good question to ask. Because when you are feeling the weight of your sin, don't You feel that very same way? Lord, if, if, if You don't give me the relief of forgiveness, how in the world can I stand? How in the world can I show up on a Sunday morning with the church and pretend like everything's okay when I feel as though You're crushing me? But you'll notice what happens between verses 3 and verses 4. In verse 3, he looks to himself and his iniquities. But what happens in verse 4? Who does he look to in verse 4? He looks away from himself and he looks to the Lord. He understands that inside of himself, he can find nothing good, just like the Apostle Paul teaches. but he understands that if he turns his eyes away from himself and he looks to the Lord, he can find nothing bad. What he finds in the Lord is a father who is eager to forgive. And this is not just a a New Testament concept. Martin Luther used used to refer to certain psalms as Pauline psalms. Psalms that were in the flavor of the Apostle Paul. Psalms 32, 51, a few others, along with Psalm 130. And he he called them that because he liked to get under people's skin a little bit, honestly. But he also called them that because they're gospel psalms. They're Psalms that acknowledge the the wretchedness of our sin, but they're Psalms that teach us not to focus on the wretchedness of our sin, but to focus on the free gift of God in His grace in Jesus Christ. But at the point of Psalm 130, they were still looking for the Christ, weren't they? Yet, God had already taught the people of Israel that He was a forgiving God, full of steadfast love, that He would pardon them and how? what was the greatest lesson that He taught them that with? He brought them out of Egypt. He brought them out of captivity. He redeemed them from the hand of Pharaoh. And so Paul, for instance, picks up on this illustration over and over and over again. Israel knew that the Lord is a forgiving Lord, and so the psalmist turns away from himself and his own wickedness, and he looks to the Lord, the one whom he's heard about, the one who he knows about, in fact, the one whom he knows so personally and can speak to in such an intimate way. He says, Lord, I'm a hot mess, but you forgive What does he say is the result of the Lord's forgiveness? He says the result of the Lord's forgiveness is that he may be feared. Which might be a funny thing to say, right? I mean, you might expect him to say, but with you there is forgiveness that I might love you, with you there is forgiveness that I might feel better. With you, there is forgiveness that you might be glorified. But you see, what we so often fail to understand is that in the reality of the fear of the Lord, all of those things are wrapped up in that. This is not a fear that drives him away from the Lord, is it? Who's he talking to? The Lord. This is a fear that drives him to the Lord. What is he feeling right now? He's feeling the weight of his sin, right? Nothing is more real to him as he ascends up the hill to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Nothing is more real to him than the truth of his sin. And yet, he knows that there is a power greater than his sin. He knows something like we sang about. That there is a grace greater than all of my sin. He knows, like the Apostle Paul says, where... Sin abounds. Grace abounds all the more. And so, this sinner's cry turns into the sinner's confidence as he looks away from himself and he looks to the Lord. And my friends, that is the same for us today. Don't not think about your sin. But when you think about your sin, don't not think about the One who crushed your sin. And in fact, as it's been said by Robert Murray McShane, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. What is the remedy when you feel the crushing weight of your sin? It is to own your sin and then to look away from yourself and to look away from your sin and to see what God has done to defeat that sin in order to offer you a full and final forgiveness. For us today, as we think about what the psalmist is highlighting, this, this marking of iniquities and this forgiveness that the Lord offers, I think, it's, I think it's best summarized for us in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. There Paul says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses And how did He forgive them? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside by nailing it to the cross. That's how. You see, God's offer of forgiveness is not willy-nilly. It's not like God's having a good day and so He's just going to decide, you know what? I ate my Wheaties this morning. I woke up on time, feeling good, forgiven. I'm being silly, right? You know that's not how God works. But God's offer of forgiveness requires that there be a sacrifice. This is a psalm that falls into the songs of ascent, which as best we can tell, were songs that Israel would have sang as they made their journey up to the city of Jerusalem where they would go into the temple to offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins. And so most likely this psalm would have been one of the psalms that they sang as they made their way up to worship the Lord. And the pinnacle of that worship would be the massive amounts of sacrifices, the blood that would flow all over from the temple. And they would know that. They would see it. They would smell it. They would touch it as they put their hands on the animal and transferred their own sin guilt onto the animal and then they would see the priest cut the animal's neck and they would feel the life of the animal drain and the animal would die and the blood would flow and the priest would offer to them a word of forgiveness. You see, they understood that it takes a sacrifice in order to secure God's forgiveness. And I want to ask you if you know the same thing. God doesn't forgive you because He's having a a good day. God doesn't forgive you because He particularly feels bad for you. God forgives you if you put your trust in Jesus Christ. And if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, my friend, God forgives you. And so this is the sinner's confidence. And then the psalm moves the psalm moves from the sinner's confidence to the sinner's commitment in verses 5 and 6. The sinner's commitment. Notice, with the, with the offer of forgiveness, with the thought of forgiveness now entering the psalmist's mind as he's acknowledged what he's feeling, he preaches the truth to himself, he gains confidence here. He has a new resolve Here, he starts to speak of what he will do in light of the Lord's forgiveness. And you'll notice a theme in verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His Word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. And so as he's thought about God's forgiveness, he is turned and he makes a resolution to wait for the Lord. Waiting isn't very popular, is it? I mean, when you go to Costco to get gas, do you intentionally choose the longest line just so that you can have the joy of waiting? I'm going to guess not. The world doesn't really like waiting very much, and so, so often what happens is that the world's view of waiting seeps into our pores, and more often than not, we adopt the world's view of waiting than the biblical view of waiting. I want to illustrate to you the world's way of waiting by a book you may be familiar with, Oh, the Places You'll Go popular book. I don't know if this is still popular to give out at graduation, but it once was. By the way, there's a new set of Christian books being written that are modeled off of this. You should get them. If you don't know about them, ask me later. But if you're familiar with the story, you know that Dr. Seuss has written this story to explain a travel, a journey about how life is full of decisions and obstacles, and and sometimes you'll soar high, and sometimes you'll fall flat on your face, and that's just life. But oh, the places you'll go. Kid, you'll move mountains. As he is explaining the twists and turns of life and all the decisions that you have to make, he says this, simple it's not, I'm afraid you will find. For a mind maker upper to make up his mind. You can get so confused that you'll start into race down long and wiggled roads at a breaknecking pace, and grind on for miles across weirdish wild space, headed, I fear, to a most useless place the waiting place. He calls it the waiting place, the most useless place. And then he goes on to explain what people are waiting for. For people just waiting. Waiting for a train to go, or a bus to come, or a plane to go, or the mail to come, or the rain to go, or the phone to ring, or the snow to snow, or waiting around for a yes or a no, or waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting. Some of us more than others for the hair part. Waiting for the fish to bite, or waiting for wind to fly a kite, or waiting around for Friday night, or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake, or a pot to boil, or a better break, or a string of pearls, or a pair of pants, or a wig with curls, or another chance. Everyone is just waiting, he says, No, that's not for you. Somehow you'll escape all that waiting and staying. You'll find the bright places where boom bands playing. That's enough, Dr. Seuss. My concern concern is that we've bought the lie. My concern is that we have also decided that waiting is is a most useless place. And instead, we're going to look for the boom bands. We're going to entice ourselves. We're going to entertain ourselves. We're going to look to Amuse ourselves. But, friends, as we pour over the scriptures over and over and over again, what do we find? We find that the people of God are a waiting people. And yet, we find, as God promises in Isaiah 40, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles, they will walk and not grow weary, they will run and not grow weary, they will walk and not grow faint. The psalmist knows that. And so he says, in light of my sin and the weight of it that I feel, in light of the fact that I know God forgives, I am going to wait. And notice who he's waiting for. He's looking for forgiveness, obviously, right? He's pressed down by his iniquities. But he doesn't say, I wait for forgiveness. He's not waiting for a thing. He's waiting for a person. I wait for the Lord. And it's so bad, he wants to illustrate this so well that he says, my soul waits. My inmost being to the core of who I am waits for the Lord. And then he illustrates his waiting. He illustrates it with the watchmen, which we don't quite understand so much anymore, but they certainly would have. According to him here in this psalm, watchmen had one job. Now, if you think about watchmen, they had a couple of jobs. First was the security of the people. But here, what is the watchman waiting for? The watchman is waiting for the morning. The watchman had one job, wait for the morning. And so you can imagine if you were that watchman, or if you were in the military and you had to pull watch at night, you know what this is like. Can't wait for the sun to come up, come up, because I'm hungry and I'm tired and everybody else is sleeping. So he he highlights the anticipation that the watchman would have had as, as he looked out on the horizon without a watch, not knowing exactly what time it was, and just waited for the sun to peek out over the horizon and for that first ray of sunshine to pierce over the night sky so that he knew the day was dawning. He's comparing it to that. And while he's doing that, he puts his hope somewhere. In particular, he hopes in his Word. The Word of the Lord. But I have a question for you. What word is he hoping in? We read this and our minds instantly go to the Bible, right? And that's that's a right place for our minds to go. But he didn't have a Bible. He had some scrolls in the temple. Or perhaps if this psalm was written a little bit later, he had some scrolls in the synagogue. I think what the psalmist is referring to is the specific word that he would hear after the sacrifice for his sin was made, from the priest to announce that because his sin was laid on this animal that was just sacrificed, he was now forgiven. But do you know the challenge with that word? First was that he had to wait for it. He had to get up to the temple to hear the word. And the next was that he had to continue to hear that word. Over and over again because the blood of bulls and goats could never ultimately deal with his sin problem. But I think, I'll have to ask him, I think that the psalmist was waiting for that word, but I think that the psalmist was waiting for an even better word. And I think that the word that the psalmist was waiting for could be summarized actually in three words. I think what he was waiting for, the word that he was waiting to hear was the words, it is finished. And so it's so fitting that Pastor Justin has been so helpfully, so helpfully preaching the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to us. As he thundered last week, the words of Christ, it is finished. You see, the psalmist was putting his hope in in those words, probably the words of the priest and then the words of the Messiah. He was looking forward and now we, my friends, in Christ get to look back to that promise. That word in which we put our hope. We put our hope not in ourselves, not in our own ability to feel better about ourselves. We put our hopes, our hope outside of ourselves and we rest it on Jesus Christ and we find that in Him, we are forgiven. And we find that as John promises in 1 John 1, 1.9, when we confess our sins, He's faithful and He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And we find that every time we get together as a church body and celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we have yet another word spoken over us that you are the people whom God has forgiven by His own sacrifice. And so then the sinner makes a commitment to wait on that word. As the the watchman waited for the sun to come up, we've got some waiting to do also, don't we? We're not waiting on the first coming of the Messiah anymore. We are waiting on the second coming. Paul says our citizenship in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior. What is the most fundamental basic thing that the Christian is doing in this life? Waiting for Jesus to come back and get me. So I can go home so I won't have to feel the crippling effects of my sin anymore. See friends, we wait for the forgiveness that comes when we confess our sins, but we also wait for the final redemption when there will be no more sin anymore. And this leads us then to the final verse of the sanctified blues, the sinner's call in verses 7-8. to The psalmist understood that as well—that it wasn't just about his own personal forgiveness, but it was also about the people whom God had gathered together to Himself. Verses seven to eight, he, having gained confidence from his own confession, having gained confidence from his own looking to God for His forgiveness, he now turns to the people of Israel. As if, for instance, they were gathered around in a room like this, listening to him preach the good news of God's Word. He turns to Israel and he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord! For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. He hopes in the Lord and in the Word of the Lord. And now that he has gained that confidence, even in the depths, he turns to the people of God and he says, I'm not doing this by myself. We're in this together, family. Hope in the Lord. And isn't that what we need so often? A brother or a sister to come to us and put their arm around us and say, man, I get it. Let me remind you of what Jesus has done for you. And I'm not talking about in in that, you know, unhelpful way that sometimes people try to give you counsel. The sort of, you know, here's a here's a Bible verse, take this and call me in the morning kind of thing. Like, don't you know Christians are just supposed to be joyful? What's wrong with you? I'm talking about the one who understands Galatians six and bearing the burdens of one another. I'm talking about the one who can say to you, you know what, I know exactly what you're thinking and feeling. But I want to remind you that Jesus does too. And that He's a sympathetic high priest. That there's nothing you're thinking or feeling that Jesus hasn't been tempted by, yet He was without sin. He didn't succumb to the sin. And so let me point you to Jesus, where your hope is truly found turns to the people of God and he encourages the people of God. He wants them to know that with God, not just is there forgiveness. He doesn't go there first, does he? But with the Lord, there's steadfast love. Because that's where the forgiveness flows. The steadfast love of the Lord. The covenant, loyal, word-keeping love of the Lord. The, the, the love that the Lord has set on His people that His people could never mess up. The type of love that says even if we're faithless, He remains faithful for He cannot deny Himself. The type of love that God declares over every one of His children when He says to them, You are Mine. I am Your Father. I love You. I am committed to You. And I will never let You go. The type of love that comes to us now most clearly and most fully. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is perfectly loved by His Father from all eternity and invites us into the fellowship of the Trinity. So that we would not just be loved the way a human father loves a human son or daughter. That won't do. Even if it's a good father. But so that we would be loved the way God the Father loves God the Son always and forever. That type of love. And so how could there not be forgiveness that flows from that type of love if you would just come to Him and say, Lord, I'm struggling with my sin and I need Your forgiveness. How could there not be? How could He who has given us Christ also with Him not give us all things? So He reminds them of the character of God His steadfast love, He reminds them of His plentiful redemption. A redemption that can cleanse every single one of your sins. A redemption that's greater than your sins, than all of the sins of all of God's people for all time, added up into one little sinful mixed pot. I guess it would be a big one. And the redemption of God is still greater. If you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if God can forgive me. That's a lie. That's a lie. He can. He will. If you would just come. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy. Come to Jesus and find your rest in Him. He ends on a note of confidence. He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. There is not a sin in the people of God that will remain once we get to the final redemption which Jesus Christ will bring when He comes again to gather His saints with Him. Jesus Himself says in John 16, 22 and 23, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of Me. Why would we ask nothing of Jesus in that day when we see Him? Because everything will be finally and fully given to us in Him. We won't need to ask anymore. We won't need to ask for forgiveness anymore. There won't be any sorrows anymore. There won't be any sin anymore. It will be gone. And we will be with Jesus. While the psalmist said, O Israel, hope in the Lord, I say, O church, hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. He is coming. He will come. I don't know when, but we're the watchmen waiting for the sun to crest, and when it does, how glorious it will be. You may be familiar with catechisms, a set of questions and answers that the church has used throughout history. I want to end our time this morning by reading to you the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism, and then we're going to sing this together. First question of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? It's a good question, isn't it? What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life, and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him." What is your only comfort in life and death? The Lord Jesus Christ. So come to Him and never stop coming to Him. Let's pray. Oh God, how could we possibly exhaust all that there is to say about the overwhelming awesomeness of your forgiveness? How could we say all there is to say about the overwhelming burden that our sin creates in us? Thank You for Jesus. Thank You for sending Jesus for us. We did not deserve it. But You did it. And it is finished. So Lord, help us to walk in the power of the Gospel. And help us, just as the psalmist did, to strengthen one another in the power of the Gospel. To come alongside one another to lift one another up, to build one another up so that we would all grow in maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's In His name that we pray. Amen.